Well, good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. You might not have seen me that much, so I felt like I needed to say it. Uh, we've had the joy and privilege of having some of our elders in training uh, preaching this series. Uh, we had Kenny, who's our pastoral resident, preaching this series. I knew I had to make a comeback because someone asked Eric if he was the main pastor at the church. We don't have a main pastor, but uh, it's definitely not Eric. Um, so I thought I had to make an appearance. I had to come back, show my face again. Uh, I'm just kidding. We don't actually have a main pastor, though. We have a flat eldership. Um, anyway, though, we're continuing our series entitled Stories That Teach as we look at a selection of the parables of Jesus from the book of Luke. So if you could turn in your Bible to Luke 15, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, we're going to be in verses 11 through 32. And as we turn to this parable, it might be familiar. Maybe you're waiting for this parable. The poet Robert Bridges called this parable in particular an absolutely flawless piece of work. This parable inspired the art of Rembrandt, the music of Debussy, and Charles Dickens actually called this the greatest short story that has ever been written. Today we're looking at probably the most famous parable that Jesus ever taught, the parable of the prodigal son. And yet, even though it's so highly regarded and people love it and it might be your favorite parable, I think that there's some truth to the statement, familiarity breeds contempt. You know what I mean? Like, we all know the story. We've heard it a million times. Even for me, I was a little bit worried about teaching it. I just felt like maybe everyone would know what it was about already. It'd be hard to kind of, I don't know, make an impact with the story. It's just it's so familiar. We've heard it a million times. But really, there's a reason why this parable has been so influential throughout history. This story has a word for everyone who is far from God. Whether you sit here every week, but honestly, you, you know you don't have a relationship with God. You see people singing, they seem to feel it. You, you see people listening to the word, and they seem to be getting convicted, but you've never felt anything like that. You're here at church, but you're wondering why there's kind of a disconnect or maybe you're someone who, you're a Christian, but you just can't seem to put the past behind you. You know what I mean? Like, you know that there are certain things that you've done, uh, certain things that have um, maybe been buried, but you're always afraid that they're going to resurface. You're kind of worried that maybe God can't put those things behind you as well. Or maybe you're just wondering if the message of Christianity is still relevant today with the issues people have, the direction society is going. You see maybe the younger generations and they seem so different. Their values are different. The way that they think is different. How could a 2,000-year-old book ever hope to change who they are? Whoever you are, Jesus would like a word. Now, usually we read the text before we get into it, but I'm assuming most of you know this story, and I think, even if you don't, I think that there will be some value to opening it, uh, opening it up as we go along, kind of letting the story unfold for us. So let me pray, and then we'll get into it. It's going to be a little different, but let me pray, and then we'll start. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, we know that you sent your son into this world as a light in the darkness. God, we know from the same chapter that he is full of grace and truth. So as we listen to the truth from his own lips, 
today, I pray that you would help us to see that grace too. And I pray, God, that that this grace would impact us anew and afresh, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. But God, I pray that grace, your grace, would resonate as amazing in our hearts today. God, that's something you can do. Your spirit can bring conviction to the hardest heart. You can open blind eyes. You can open deaf ears. You can make the dead alive. So God, I pray that you would do that for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Do you enjoy it in a story when the villain gets what he or she deserves? Do you like that when kind of the hate for this character has been building up the entire plot and then at the very end, something happens where they get exactly what was coming to them? I remember reading the children's book, Matilda, when I was younger. If you don't know the story, uh, it's a Roald Dahl story. It's about a girl named Matilda, obviously, who has a completely chaotic and really horrible childhood. Her parents don't care about her. And when she goes to kindergarten, even though her kindergarten teacher is nice to her, the principal is horrific. She's terrible. She's abusive. And if you've seen only, if you've only seen the movie, it's almost funny in the movie because it's so over the top. But in the book, if you're actually thinking, especially from a parent's point of view, if you're thinking about what's happening, it's awful. She punishes, she punishes the children in such violent ways, the parents don't even believe the kids when they tell them. For example, this girl shows up to school with pigtails. And uh, Mrs. Trunchbull, that's her name, Miss Trunchbull, she's not married. Miss Trunchbull, she says, I hate pigtails. She says, are you a little piggy? And she grabs the girls by her pigtails. And she was an Olympic, she's like Eastern European, she's like an Olympic field person, track and field athlete. So she hammer throws this girl by her pigtail. She spins her around and throws her. And thankfully she lands in like a, in the brush in grass and she's okay. She embarrasses this kid who stole some cake from the school. She makes him sit in front of the entire student body and eat this entire cake in front of everybody. And then when he actually does it and everyone's cheering for him, she takes the tray that the cake was on and slams it over his head. She has this crop, and some of you guys might know what this is, but she has this little whip and she beats the kids. She hits the kids with it to instill fear and discipline. She's just this loathsome character. And it's not just how she treated the kids at school, but it's how she treated her own family. You find out that she actually murdered one of her relatives to get his inheritance. She adopted his daughter and treated her terribly. She broke her arm made her live in poverty, physically hurt her in all these different ways. She's just terrible. And there's a term for this sort of character in literature. It's called a hate sink. I don't know if you've heard that before. It's slang, hate sink. Someone that is written just so the reader can pour out all of your hate upon this person. Now, by the end of the book, you are hoping, you hope that she will get retribution in some way, that some authority figure will find out what's going on in the school, what's going on in her home, that someone or something will force her to take accountability for her actions. And it happens. She does get what's coming to her, as it so often did in those old children's stories. And maybe if you think about some of the stories that you like, this happens. Right, the bully gets punched back. The scammer loses everything that they scammed. The murderer gets caught and so on and so forth. And there's something that is satisfying about that, right? 
That's what we want. When confronted with evil, when we see something that is truly horrific, when we have to reckon with something wrong, I don't care how sympathetic you are by personality, if it's your kid getting abused by the principal, you're going to be up in arms. You're going to be outraged. You're going to want some kind of justice to be done. No way are you just going to let it slide. And yet that seems to be what happens in this most famous parable of Jesus. The greatest short story ever written. And yet the villain of the story gets off scot-free. A young man leaves his home. He hits rock bottom. It's entirely his fault and returns to be reconciled to his father. What an amazing story of redemption, the preacher says, of grace. And yet if you look at it from a different perspective, from a more realistic perspective, maybe from a parent's or maybe from someone within the family, I don't know, say an older brother, the story looks completely different. It's about a young man who foolishly and callously dishonors his family, disavows his family, and basically throws away everything good they gave him just out of pure idiocy, out of selfishness, out of not a care or concern for anyone else but himself in the world. And then he comes home and the father rejoices that he's back. Now, We're in this parable, and we've been talking about parables these past few weeks. We've explained what they are. They are stories using everyday people and places and things to teach spiritual lessons. And what we've said again and again every week is that parables both reveal and they conceal. Right? They reveal and they conceal truth. So for those who have ears to hear, who are really thinking about what Jesus is saying, they get deeper into the kingdom of God. They understand something profound about who God is. And yet for those who don't feel like it's worth it, they walk away. But there's a deeper layer to this. It wasn't just that they had an intellectual purpose, that they revealed and concealed truth. They also had a spiritual purpose. They hardened or softened hearts. In fact, in Matthew 21, it says, when the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. They got the gist of what he was saying, but what did it lead to? Verse 46, the next verse. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They were afraid of the crowds, but what they really wanted to do was to arrest him. They didn't like what he said. They wanted to get some kind of retribution against him. So, Understand, even when people got the gist of the parables, they didn't always like it. In fact, many of the parables were hard to hear. They taught something that was convicting, something that didn't always put the hearer in the best light. So why am I talking about this? Well, the parable we're going to hear today just might be the most uncomfortable parable that Jesus ever taught. Not just the most famous one, but the most uncomfortable. We have to understand the context. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Almost every parable, and you've seen this in the past few weeks, was told in response to a situation. This one is no different. The situation is the tax collectors and sinners want to hear Jesus. Now, tax collectors were considered the worst of the worst in Israel. They were the bottom of the barrel, both morally and socially. Now, you got to understand, Israel was under Roman occupation. They were an oppressed people. And yet what some Jewish people did was they joined in on the oppressing. They became tax collectors for Rome. They joined the enemy to tax their own people. 
And what made this even worse is that a lot of them were corrupt. Corruption was rampant. They wouldn't just take from, or take from their own people to give to Rome. They would also take some off the top because they had the authority of the Roman legion behind them. Rome would require 30%. They would ask for 40 and pocket the 10% on top. And if you said no, if you tried to protest, you'd have Roman legionnaires at your door the next day. So it was really a good system for those who had no morals, people who were greedy, people who didn't care about betraying their own families, neighbors, and countrymen. Tax collectors were soulless. They were their own category of sinner. And it says here, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the word sinner is self-explanatory. People who were characterized by their sin. Whatever that sin was, that's how they were known. They were known by their immoral deeds or that one thing they did way back in the day, their immoral lifestyle, whatever it might be, people who are far from God, let's just say. Verse 2. So everyone's coming to hear him. All the riffraff, verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, the Pharisees, okay, we got to get into this world a little bit. The Pharisees today in church, we talk about them like they're the villains of the New Testament. And they kind of are. They did uh, oppose Jesus at every turn. But in their day and age, if you were someone who knew a Pharisee, you wouldn't view them as a villain at all. The Pharisees, let the reader understand, were the conservatives of Israel. They were the ones who cared about God and country and traditional values. They knew the scriptures backward and forward. They taught the importance of right and wrong. So they were understandably bothered, let's just say, by the fact that the supposed Messiah was receiving literally the worst people you could think of. I mean, can you imagine that today? I mean, I don't know who you think the worst people are, but whoever they are, imagine if the supposed Messiah, imagine if the Christ was receiving those people. It would bother us a little bit. It would seem strange at the very least. So Jesus told a parable because he understood this dynamic. He understood what was going on in their hearts. And really it's a three-parter. The first part of the parable has to do with a man who loses a sheep and then searches everywhere to find it. And when he finds it, he rejoices. Verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he doesn't stop. He tells another story of a woman who has 10 silver coins, verse 8. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus doesn't stop. He launches into the third part of this one parable, the third part of the story, the part we're going to get into about a man who has two sons. So now as we finally get into it, remember, remember the context. This parable is just as much about the situation as the story itself. And the situation is really the scandal that we call grace. Grace. And this parable doesn't just touch on grace. It doesn't just describe it a little bit. Really what it does is it confronts us with it. It smacks us with grace in the face. It forces us to reckon with what it means. It challenges us to offer our own verdict. And in doing so, it exposes every single one of its hearers. So as you listen to this story, pay attention to how you feel about it. 
pay attention to how you feel. If there's joy or resentment, whatever it might be, whatever you feel, that's what's in your heart. Whoever has ears to hear, please hear. Now we're going to break down this text into nine parts. You know, I haven't preached in a few weeks, so I've been saving up for you guys. Hopefully you don't have any plans until five. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> it's going to be a little different, okay? We'll try to get you out on normal time. Nine parts. First, the request. The request. Look at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Now stop there. We have to understand, okay? We understand the characters. We get what a man is. We get what two sons are. But we need to understand that this was a different time in a different world. We talked about this a little bit in the past few weeks. Kenny touched on this. This was an honor-shame society. There were a lot of rules, unspoken rules, about what was appropriate and what wasn't appropriate. This is how Middle Eastern cultures functioned then and to a certain extent now. And to fully understand the parable, we need to hear it the way Jesus' original hearers would have heard it. They intrinsically understood certain things were just wrong. You can't do that to live in this society, and certain things were right. You behaved a certain way. And this is important because everything that happens in this story is shameful. Literally every single thing that happens is something where people would have been like, that's not supposed to happen that way. In fact, John MacArthur says, the story Jesus tells is a bizarre, unbelievable, incomprehensible, wild, wacky, ridiculous story of nonstop shame that nobody could understand. Everything Jesus talks about in this story is counter to their intuitive thinking. It is against the grain of their society. They don't function this way. They do not think this way. The level of outrage just continues to escalate. So with that being said, let's get into it. It starts with a request, verse 12. And the younger of them, of the two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, what's wrong with that? Literally everything is wrong with that. Okay, maybe not everything. He does say father, which is a respectful way of talking, but that only serves to highlight how disrespectful and dishonoring this request is. He wants his share of the inheritance right now. Now, how does an inheritance work usually? It works the same today. When a person passes away, they allocate their stuff to someone, usually their kids or the next of kin, whatever it might be. Remember when I got that $12 million? Turned out it was a scam. You don't get your inheritance usually until after your parents pass away. That's how it works. Your parents are gone. Now someone gets their stuff. But the younger son, he wants his inheritance now. Look, you're commanded to honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments. If you don't know much, you at least know that. Right away, he goes up to his dad, and basically what he says is, I can't wait for you to die Please give me everything now and let's just be done with it. Let's stop pretending that we have a relationship. Just give me the stuff. I'll be gone and you don't have to worry about me. I won't think about you. That'll be great. This is basically saying he wishes his father was already dead. It couldn't be more dishonoring. Everyone listening right away would have been disgusted with this kid. It's like seeing the most spoiled kid in the world. It's like those kids who went to Willy Wonka's factory. This ingrate, this good-for-nothing loser, scum like him should be slapped silly until they came to their senses. And in this society, a father had a right to actually discipline his kid for saying something like this. In fact, in the law, for those who dishonored their parents egregiously, they actually were supposed to be put to death. That's what you'd expect, something like that. And yet, second point, the response. 
Verse 12 again, and he divided his property between them. This is embarrassing. This is enabling. This is essentially funding your son's shameful behavior. Any self-respecting father not only would, would punish that son, but they would at least deny the request. They would at least say, no, what are you thinking? Get back outside to work or go to your room or whatever it might be. And parents here, you get this, right? Even if you love the kid, right? Even if you have a soft spot for them, if they ask you for the inheritance, you're going to say, uh, no, right? Wait until I die. But how does the father respond? He splits the estate. Now, there's two sons, so the older son, being the oldest, would get two-thirds. The younger son would get a full one-third of the estate. So he gives him a third. Now, again, you got to put yourself in the sandals of his hearers. All of them are, again, surprised by the decision. Things are not going the way they should go in a normal family, a normal household. Why doesn't the father defend his own honor here? This is very embarrassing. This father is weak. And by the way, where's the older brother? If the father isn't going to defend himself, maybe, you know, maybe he just has that much of a soft spot for the boy. In that society, the older brother had a responsibility. He was going to be the one to take over the family estate later. So he would have to defend the father's honor. That was part of being the oldest. And he would also look out for the younger brother, keep him from ruining his life. Where is he? Why doesn't he step in in some way? Why doesn't he pipe up? He's nowhere to be found. The estate is split. Everyone would have been thinking, what's wrong with this family? And this is exactly what the Pharisees were feeling about Jesus and his ministry to the tax collectors and sinners. This is why he's telling this parable. Understand. Are you serious, Jesus? You're supposed to be the Messiah, the one who's going to save us from our oppression, the one who's going to rescue us, bring us into the kingdom of God, the one who's going to make our lives better. You're supposed to be on our side. Don't you know who these people are? They don't deserve this. They don't deserve ministry. They don't deserve God. They don't deserve the kingdom. And this leads to the third part, the rebellion, verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Soon after, the younger son, he gathers everything that he has. And to gather everything that he has, you can't just gather up land. So the implication here is that he consolidated everything, that he liquidated it, you could say. He sold the land to get money or whatever it might be. Now, land was not easy to come by in this day and age. That's why it was so important to have kids. That's why it was such a burden on people when they couldn't have sons, because you passed on the family land to the sons. If you had to get rid of it, you couldn't just get it back easily. So this younger son, he just gets rid of it. He doesn't care. He sells it off in front of his family, in front of his brother and his father and his mother, presumably. And he goes off into a far country. And he wastes everything on reckless living. Now, the word there, reckless, is where we get the name of this parable. It's the word asotos in Greek, often translated as prodigal. That's why it's called the prodigal son. Now, you might think the prodigal son, it means like the lost son or the rebellious son. That's not what it means. Prodigal, asotos, what it means is basically over the top. It means extravagant. Okay, he just spends everything like crazy. His living was extreme. Anyone could have seen what was coming next, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, obviously... A severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Now, okay, part of this was circumstantial. There was a famine, but the truth is he was the one who spent everything. If he had been responsible, the famine would not have touched him in the way that it did. But because he spent everything, he wasn't careful with his money. In fact, he was prodigal with it. Once the famine hits, 
He is in deep trouble. Verse 15. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. Now, again, remember the the listeners here. Every single person here is Jewish. Even if you're a tax collector, even if you're a trader, you know that there's one animal that you need to avoid at all costs. You don't sacrifice it. You don't eat it, God forbid, and you definitely don't go near it. It's a pig. Pigs were unclean. And yet this guy, this younger son, is so destitute. He's at such rock bottom that he actually goes to feed pigs. That's the only job he can get. And not only that, he longs to eat the pig's food. You couldn't imagine someone more at rock bottom than this. He shamefully sacrificed his relationship with his father. He's brought dishonor to them. He's embarrassed his father's reputation in the town. He's sold their land, which won't be easily, won't be easy to get back. He's trampled on the morals he was raised on. He's poor. He's helpless. He's lonely in a strange land. He doesn't even have any more dignity. There's nothing more embarrassing for a person, for a Jewish person, than to be in the mud with the pigs. It's one of those moments where you feel like you can never come back from it. How do you come back from something like this? How do you show your face to your family, to your former friends, to society? And yet this is the picture of the sinner. And yeah, it's extreme, but this is actually what sin is. If you think about it, as someone once said, sin is a desire to run from God, to avoid all responsibility, accountability to God. It is to deny God any place in your life. It is to dishonor God, to take all the loving gifts that are available and squander them as far away from God as you can get. It is to waste your life in self-indulgent dissipation, unrestrained lust, shunning all God's goodness. It is reckless evil. It is selfish indulgence that takes you to the brink of death. Sin looks for fulfillment outside and away from God and never finds it. It leaves the sinner exhausted, empty, hungry, and hopeless. You see this in the prodigal Son, The prodigal son is the prototypical sinner, an extreme version perhaps, but that's to make a point. And you'd almost feel sorry for him, except he brought all of this on himself. If he had made a different decision at any point along the way, he wouldn't be here. He had it all, loving family, riches, comfort, status in society. He gave it up for what? A few months of wild living. When he goes back home, his older brother says, you spent our family's money, our estate on prostitutes. You wasted it. How do you come back from something like this? Have you ever felt like you did something where you couldn't come back from it? Like if people found out what you did, you know, you just would have to move away or something like that. It could even be in... I mean, less extreme terms, maybe it's, you know, you have an accountability group and you share about the same struggle every single week. And then the past week you had an encouraging time meeting and praying together. And you, you know, you said, I'm not going to give into the sin ever again. Right. And you really meant it, but then you fell again. How do you show your face at the next accountability meeting? How do you share that you just gave in again after everything that everyone poured into you? Maybe your spouse, maybe when you got married, you knew that there were certain things about your past that you should have shared. And yet you felt like in the moment you chickened out because I just can't share those things. If they knew who I really was, I don't even know if this marriage is going to go through. I can't be seen like that. I'll just bury it. 
deep down inside of my past. Maybe it's church people. Maybe you're fine sharing stuff from the way past, right? Stuff that you supposedly overcame. Yeah, back in my life, back in the day, I used to do this, but now I'm totally different. It's a, a story of triumph and, and how you overcame certain things and how you've grown and now you're a Christian. But then when you fall into those things again, or you still struggle, or even if there's new struggles, it's hard to share. You look around at church and everyone, you know, they ask for prayer requests and they say, just help me to uh, love God even more. I'm kind of at 99%, but I got to get up to 100%. And you feel like you can't share. You feel like you can't share about who you really are. So you sin and then you feel like you can't come back from it. What do you do? We hide. We isolate ourselves. We pretend that everything's fine. Basically, we lie. Because if people knew how low we've been, they can never look at us the same. This is what happens so often in church. So often. And this leads to the fourth point, the realization. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. It says that he came to himself. He had a realization. My father's servants, they have more than enough food, but I am perishing. I'm dying over here with hunger. I'm perishing. There's a kind of desperation that overrules pride. And so he hatches a plan. He says, I'll go and I'll say sorry. And he really means it. His plan isn't to reclaim his, his post, his position as the son of his father. He, he knows he squandered it. He doesn't say, I'll go get another third of the property. Merely, he'll merely ask to be a hired servant so that he'll not die. And these hired servants, the word in Greek, they weren't even permanent servants. They weren't people who like lived in the house or had really a relationship with the father. They were people, you know, like people you might see at a gas station who were just looking to get hired for the day. I'll be one of those. And the question here is, why would he think he could just do this after all he's done? Well, if you look at what he says, it's not about how he feels about himself. He knows that he's not worthy. He doesn't even presume that he would be in the house again. His single-minded, single-minded fixation is on the goodness of his father. He says, even the lowliest people have more than enough. He said, maybe I can get some scraps from off the table. It's not about who he is. He knows he's not worthy. It's about who his father is. What we see here is real conviction and real repentance. There are no excuses. There are no justifications for why I did this, or let me explain. I was just immature, or how things got out of hand. And perhaps most notably, there are no empty promises here. No empty promises. Hey, you know, I got a check coming from my old boss. Don't worry about what I did for work. We won't talk about that, but I'll start paying you back, and I'll, I'll give you back a third of the estate, and then we can just forget like all of this ever happened. The plan is to beg. He knows he can't pay it back. You remember that servant in another parable that Jesus taught? He had like a billion dollar debt. He's called before the king. The king says, pay me what you owe. He says, just give me a little bit more time and I'll pay it back. That's not the prodigal son here. The hope, the only hope is that the father might show a little bit of mercy. And this leads to the fifth part, the return. 
verse 20. And he actually gets up and goes. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's the thing, okay, about religious people. And I use that term very generally. You could say we're all religious people here at church. But the thing about religion in general across the world, not just Christians, is that it's very fair. It's about karma. You do something good, you get something back good. Right? You become a good person, a good enough person so that God will bless you. God will accept you. There are good people in the world. There are bad people in the world. The goal is to be on the good side. Be on the good side. You live with integrity, morality, righteousness, and God will, at the end of the day, welcome you into heaven or the gods or whatever you believe in. But as the story goes, C.S. Lewis once stumbled upon a bunch of his fellow professors and academics discussing world religion at Oxford or Cambridge. I forget which one. He was at both at different times. And they asked him, what's the difference between Christianity and other religions? What's the unique contribution? What's the uniqueness of Christianity compared to all other religions? And C.S. Lewis didn't even have to think about it. He said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. What makes the Christian religion fundamentally different from every other religion on the face of the planet can be summarized in one single term. And that word is grace. See, look at the text. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was looking, in other words. I mean, can you picture the story as Jesus tells it? The father sitting on the porch every day, looking out, waiting for the day when that familiar silhouette darkened the horizon, the shadow of the son that he had loved since the moment he was brought into the world. He was looking and he felt compassion. Could have felt a million different things and they would have been right. He could have felt anger. He could have felt some resentment. He could have felt like, oh, this kid is showing up again. He felt compassion and then he ran. This might be one of the craziest details of this entire story. Middle Eastern men at this time did not run. They covered their legs. It was dishonorable. It was embarrassing to run. People should run to you. You should be able to take your time if you were a man of any dignity and substance. The whole thing is embarrassing. And not only does he run a little bit, he runs while the sun is still a long ways off. So he runs through the town. Instead of his son having to take this walk of shame where everyone sees him coming back filthy and muddy, The father runs and takes all of the attention upon himself, all of the shame, all of the scorn. And instead of slapping that son across the face for his insolence, instead he embraces him and he kisses him. And the people listening would have thought, what's up with this story? Now you are, you and I, maybe we've heard it a million times in church and we're like, amen, this is amazing. Grace is amazing. Let's sing the song. But they would have been thinking, what's wrong with this father? At least have some dignity, some honor. Please just at least wait for him to apologize or beg. He should do something to deserve this. You're just giving your forgiveness away for free. Now the son does try to apologize. He says what he rehearsed, verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There's not one single lie in what he says. He's not worthy. He has sinned not just against the Father, but against heaven. What he has done is despicable in God's sight. So if he's not worthy, if he's really not worthy to be a son, then why is he there? What does he deserve? This leads to the sixth part, the rejoicing. The rejoicing. But, strong contrast, 
The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The father gives reconciliation. He's offered forgiveness. He has taken the shame and the scorn upon himself. He has embraced him. He has kissed him as his own son. And there's even more than this. The father shows himself to be prodigal too, not reckless, but extravagant in his love. Over the top, he brings the best robe, not just any old robe. He puts the family ring on his finger. He gives him shoes. That's how bad things were. He didn't even, this fool didn't even have shoes anymore. And then he says, bring the fattened calf, verse 23, and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now, the fattened calf, it was saved in rich families for only the best of occasions, usually the oldest son's wedding. Okay, so you can file that away in your mind for a little bit later when we see the older son. But they would literally feed this young cow, fatten it up for the best occasion, and then they would kill it, and then everyone would have the best steak they ever had in their lives. For a few weeks, the father says, kill the fattened calf for this, for this occasion. Why? Verse 24, for my son, this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And there you have it. There was a lost sheep and a shepherd went and searched everywhere to find that one sheep. And when he found it, he rejoiced. There was a lost coin and a woman swept up her entire house. And when she found that coin, she rejoiced and invited everyone else to share in that joy. And there was a lost son. And when the father receives that son back, he rejoices and invites everyone else to celebrate. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents So what do we learn about God here in this parable? We see God who is so gracious with sinners. It's almost unbelievable. We see a God who initiates reconciliation, who sees the sinner before the sinner even sees him. He takes the scorn and shame upon himself. His love is extravagant. It's prodigal. His grace is amazing. And yet the story this time isn't over. And this is so important because you might be wondering, what about the consequences? If you're really thinking about it, what about the shame? What about the inheritance? What about the money that was lost? What about the relationships that are broken? A lot of stories, they end on this good note. But if you really think about it, how could they live happily ever after? All the problems were just swept under the rug. Jesus doesn't end the story here. Part seven, the refusal. Verse 25, now his older son, who we haven't seen yet, was in the field. He's working. He's doing his son duty, his, the duty he owes his father, his familial duty. And as he came and drew near to the house, he's sweaty, he's tired, he's given so much. He hears music and dancing. Verse 26, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, Remember what I said, the fattened calf was usually saved for the oldest son's wedding. Imagine hearing this, your brother has come back and you don't hate him, right? You're glad he's not dead somewhere in a ditch. But this guy has embarrassed your father and your family. He has wasted your family's inheritance and estate. He has done nothing but bring you pain and embarrassment 
And now he's back and everyone's celebrating like the hometown hero just came back from a victory. I mean, imagine how you would feel. You got to put yourself in the older brother's shoes to really understand this parable. Even if you're a little happy that he's okay, part of you knows deep down that it's not right. It's not right. Because in every good story, the villain gets what they deserve. There's a reason why they're built up a certain way so that justice could be done, so that they could be held accountable for their actions. Who has been the villain of this family's story? Think about it from the older brother's perspective. Who has been the villain of your story? Exactly. And yet little brother comes back, doesn't just get off easy. They give him everything. What has he done to deserve this? And then what about the fattened calf? How could you just give him that? And this is the Pharisee's point. You got to understand, this is the Pharisee's point, why they grumble. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever stop and wonder why this triggered the Pharisees so much? Why this bothered them? Why this got under their skin? Like, who cares? Right? Jesus is teaching to the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes, right? He's just preaching publicly. Why does it matter that he would try to reach out to certain people who obviously need it? Why does that concern them? Well, it matters. It concerns them because their entire worldview is based on merit. Do you understand what I mean? It's based on what you deserve. What you deserve. And these people, when Jesus reaches out to them, it flies in the face of everything you believe about how the world and how God works. They don't deserve it. The older son is channeling the Pharisees here. Jesus gets to their, Jesus understands their argument. So how does the older brother respond to this news? Does he rejoice like everyone else? He can't. It wouldn't be right to in his own mind, verse 28, but he was angry. In his own heart, it's righteous indignation. He was angry and refused to go in. Finally, the Pharisees would have thought someone is acting properly here. Someone has got to be the voice of reason. Don't dignify this nonsense by pretending everything's okay because it's not. Again, this is the Pharisees' point. Why they grumbled. It's a matter of principle. Verse 28. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered the father, look. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command that you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He unleashes on the father. I mean, you can almost hear the vitriol in his voice. He is, this has been building for a while. He has very little respect for this man. Like his younger brother, what he said was really bad. At least he talked respectfully. But here the older brother just drops all pretense. He doesn't even say father. He says, look. These many years I have served you. And the word there is a different word for serving. It's the word doulos. That's the root word. It's slave. I've been slaving away for you all these years, and you never gave me anything. I've never disobeyed. You've never given me. Verse 30. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Can't even bring himself to say, my brother. He hates this guy. He hates his father for loving this guy. I want nothing to do with this, uh, with this family. If this is how this is going to go. And here's the crazy thing. He's been home all this time. He's been serving in the fields. He's been doing his 
familial duty. And yet, he hates the father. Do you see why the Pharisees grumble? Do you see why the older brother is angry? Does it resonate with you at all? Because it does with me a little bit. If bad people just get forgiven all easy and blessed and get blessed, what's the point of being good? That's what the religious person asks. Why did I try so hard to be nice if it doesn't matter? Why did I give so much money if it doesn't matter? Why did I spend time on Sunday in the afternoon, basically taking up my whole day so I can't make any plans if it doesn't matter? Why did I serve if it doesn't matter? Why did I teach my kids that if it doesn't matter? If bad people just get accepted by God so easily, then it doesn't matter. The Pharisees knew how hard it was to be good. And Jesus called them out for their hypocrisy. Don't get me wrong, but they tried hard. They did not live fun lives. They tried to obey all these different rules. They had all this decorum that they followed. There were so many pleasures and comforts of the world that they had abstained from and avoided because they believed that this is what God wanted. This is how they would be blessed. And now the Messiah, supposed Messiah is here. And it's like, he doesn't care about any of these things. Do you have any idea the sacrifice we've been paying? And if there's anybody today who might feel a bit of what the Pharisees felt, it's got to be us. And when I say us, I mean churchgoers. People who try to live for God. You go to church all your life. You abstain from sex, drugs, and alcohol. You go to Bible study. You discipline yourself. You're trying so hard to live for God. And then when it doesn't seem like it's doing anything for you, when you're still just as unhappy as before, and then you see someone else who's just living their life however they want, and they seem to have everything that you want, it's almost too much to take. If your whole worldview is based on merit, based on what you deserve, you just cannot believe what kind of story Jesus is teaching. This can't be right. And let me tell you something. This is why the older brother is so important to this story. The story is not complete without the older brother because what he says sounds so reasonable. What he says sounds so right. And as evangelical Christians, we don't think that we have a worldview based on merit. We've been trained to talk about grace all the time. We sing about it. We talk about it. We say things like, oh, I'm such a sinner. I deserve nothing. People ask us how we're doing. We say, oh, better than I deserve. But in our heart of hearts, in our heart of hearts, it's very hard to shake a merit-based way of looking at the world. I heard an interview recently with an ex-pastor, and I think now an ex-Christian. So maybe he was never a Christian to begin with. But what he said really stuck stuck out to me. Um, they were asking him about, you know, leaving behind church and stuff like that. And he had been a pastor for a long time, a lot longer than me, probably 20 years. And he said, well, you know, sacrifice always leads to resentment. Think about that. Sacrifice always leads to resentment. The interviewer was saying, it sounds like you have some bitterness or just some trauma or some issues that you're dealing with from your church experience. And he says, of course, because I sacrificed so much. I gave so much to these people, my time, my energy, my money, the best years of my life. I opened up my house to all these people. And for what? He was so bitter. And he said, sacrifice always leads to resentment. It was very sad to hear. Sacrifice always leads to resentment. And yet, that was how he felt. 
And I think even though it's hard to hear, I think a lot of us maybe can relate. We would never say that in church, but I think sometimes we feel that. We feel some resentment. Resentment at people who, turns out, didn't deserve your time and your effort and your money and your love and opening up your house and your hearts to them. Like maybe you were excited about being a Christian and you just felt like you've been burned one too many times. I'm not sure how many more times you can just help people out or be available to sacrifice for something or, or give. You just feel like you're so tired. You just don't have anything left. I mean, I thought this before too. I'll be honest about ministry, about being a pastor, even being a Christian. I've literally thought, who needs this? Who needs this? Some of us, we have resentment at churches that ask too much. Resentment at specific people who we feel like took advantage of us. Resentment maybe even at God, that we gave so much and he's made our lives so hard. This leads to the eighth part, the rejection. Now, the first part of the parable was about a sheep, the second a coin. The third part is obviously about a son, a lost son. But what we see here is that it's not just one son who is lost, it's two. And how do we know this? Because with the sheep, the shepherd went out to seek after it. With the coin, the woman swept the floor until she found it. Now, what do we see here in this text? When the older son refuses to come in, the father comes out to find him and entreat him. This parable is next level. See, there are two kinds of lostness in this world. There's the sort of worldly, antagonistic, secular, I want nothing to do with God, lostness. You know what I'm talking about? The people who just don't care about morality say, I don't want your religion. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to live my life my own way. That's the younger son. But there's another kind of lostness, maybe a more damning one. This kind of lostness is proper. It's religious. It's conservative. You appear fine on the outside, but inwardly you're getting more and more discontent, more and more angry, more and more bitter. Because you're doing all these good things and it seems like there's no payoff for them. And you see that whenever it seems like people who don't deserve it get what you want. They haven't lived like me. They haven't stewarded their stuff. They haven't disciplined themselves for godliness. They haven't served the Father. There are two types of lostness and both exist in the human heart. And I'm sure that there's a mixture of both in us. Ways in which we are prim and proper, ways in which we really try to do good, ways in which we have sins that we struggle with that we don't want to talk about or we have a past that's hard to shake, like I said. The crazy thing is it's both our sin and our religiosity that are keeping us from God. And as this parable shows, religiosity can actually be even worse. John Gerstner, R.C. Sprawl's mentor, once said this, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Let me say that again. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Now, he wasn't downplaying sin and he wasn't cussing. He meant this literally. It's our sin that drives us away from God, but it's our damnable good works that keep us away from him. 
They keep us from seeking repentance like the younger son who knew in his heart of hearts that he was unworthy, that he had nothing. Our good works make us think in our merit-based worldviews that we somehow deserve something. So look, this is why the older son is so important to the story because we might look at the younger son wrongly. We might be tempted to view his repentance still through the lens of merit and deserving. Why did the prodigal son return home, you might ask? And some people today will twist it and they'll say, because he's a son. Because sons always deserve a place at the table. Fathers should always welcome back their sons. God was bound to do this. I know this is the case because I've heard it. Just not in this way. Not from people expositing this text, but in how people actually live. I shared about this before, but I have a friend a guy that I knew pretty well. We served together. He was a worship leader at a church that I went to for a long time. We served in college ministry when I was a college pastor together. After I moved to Texas, uh, I found out that he left his wife and his family. He had two kids. Giving too many details out. Um, but he left his family. Um, and people at church, he, he was so connected with them. He had so many friends for years. And people tried to reach out to him. And what they said was, this is wrong. Don't do this. Think about your kids. Think about your wife. And most importantly, think about God. And you know what he said? He said, even though it's wrong, I'm still going to do it. I'm going to divorce my wife. I'm going to leave my family. And God will forgive me. I'll just say sorry after. And I'll be forgiven. God will forgive me. It's like the old quote by the German poet Heinrich Hein. What he said at the end of his life. After not caring about God at all, he said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. God has to be gracious. God has to be merciful. God has to be loving. There are people who think they deserve God's forgiveness just by existing. There are people who deep down believe they deserve God's grace just because God is gracious. They presume upon it. They are entitled. And maybe that's how some of us feel. We think that God owes us something for some reason, even though we preach grace out of one side of our mouths. But see, here's the thing that you have to understand, and I have to understand it too. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. Did you hear what I said? Grace, by definition, is undeserved. You cannot deserve it. If you deserve it, if you think you deserve it, it's not grace. You're looking at something else. You're looking at wages. That's not grace. This is what the father wants his older son to understand. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father doesn't harshly rebuke the older son, though he's clearly just as lost, as sinful, as hateful. He also doesn't say, you're right. You deserve all these things because of your hard work. Rather, he appeals to him. He calls him son. Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. The only thing stopping you from rejoicing and celebrating and having everything yourself is your own damnable good works. The older son is lost and he's right outside the door. Do you see how tragic that is? And maybe we're more lost than we think. Going to church every single week, playing the religious game, playing it well, but we're getting tired. We think we might not make it to the finish line because we've been 
running on our own strength, our own effort, trying to somehow make a trade with God, a bargain. If I just give more, will you give me a little bit more, God? God, I'm just going to try to make it to the finish line so that you can give me heaven. I will run the race as fast as I can. Or maybe we're tempted to give the younger son that kind of life a try. I don't know, leave our wives, find someone new. Maybe we think God will forgive us anyway. We're just thinking in terms of merit. We're not thinking in terms of grace. And if this is you, you have a choice today. Either harden your heart in response to this parable like the Pharisees did, or step inside to the celebration. To understand that the offer is completely free. You don't deserve it at all. But the offer is completely free. Now, how do we know the Pharisees harden their hearts? The parable ends on a cliffhanger. The lights go off or go on, excuse me, and the curtains come up. It's just Jesus and the Pharisees as they began the story. What will they do? And you'd hope that the older son would confess, you know what? I have been living a double life. You'd hope that he would in brokenness turn to the father for help, that he would ask for forgiveness, that he would say, you know, I've been trying to earn everything, but I realize now that it was never about that at all. You hope that he would embrace his father, that he would go inside to celebrate, that he would take his rightful place in the seat of honor at this banquet, which would have been his. But that's not actually what happened. What happened was the older son made up some story about the father, told it to the Romans, got his father arrested and tried and beaten, and then ultimately crucified for rebellion against Rome, all based on a bitter lie. Now, I'm not making that up. That's exactly what the Pharisees went out and did after they heard this parable. That was about them. They did exactly that to Jesus. They made up that story to Pontius Pilate. They said, we have no king but Caesar. They utterly rejected God. See, grace is hard to receive. You think it'd be easy, but it's not at all. To receive grace means to admit you deserve nothing. To receive grace means laying aside every ounce of pride you have. To receive grace means letting go of the control you want to have over your own fate. You don't get to decide. It's up to God. To receive grace means you have to fundamentally view other people differently. No one is better or worse off than you when it comes to their eternal ledger. Last point quickly. This is the conclusion. I'm sorry, James. We'll close with this point. The real son. What the two sons teach us is that all of us are sinners. All of us are sinners. We can wear different hats. We can live totally different lives on the outside, but all of us are lost. And the truth is the only person who separates you from the father isn't the father. It's you, your sin, and your damnable good works. Do you see that? You're the one who is lost. You're the one who separated yourself in your sin. We are the villains in God's story. That's a hard thing to accept and to hear. But if you have ears to hear, please hear. We are all villains. And if we all got what we deserve as sinners, we'd each receive an eternity in hell. That's justice. And yet we have the story of grace right here in Luke 15. The greatest short story in the Bible. And the question remains, so does grace cancel out justice? What do we do with the, the law and and God's wrath against sin and who pays for that? Well, what about the shame? What happens to the embarrassment and the inheritance and all these things? 
I mentioned earlier, this was a different time and a different culture. And in that world, the oldest son's duty was to protect the honor of the father and also to look out for the younger brother. In this story, the older son totally fails at both. But you have to understand that in the real story, not the story that Jesus told, but in the story that Jesus lived, the real older brother didn't fail. What do I mean? Well, if you turn to the beginning of this parable, if you look at it, the parable of the lost sheep, the first shepherd goes out to seek, and he doesn't stop until he finds. The woman, she sweeps until she finds the coin. In this story, no one really makes a strong effort to go find the sons. But if you zoom out on the story, when the curtains close again, you have Jesus receiving tax collectors and sinners. You have Jesus speaking to Pharisees and scribes. You have Jesus, the only begotten son of the father, saying a parable to the lost sheep of Israel. In fact, a little on later in Luke, in Luke 19, Jesus actually makes it explicit. He says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's exactly what he's doing here. In the telling of this parable, Jesus is the real older son, not in the parable, but in redemptive history. He's the true older brother, the one whom the father sent to rescue a lost and sinful world. Do you remember the prodigal son? He says, I am perishing for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the one that saves prodigals and seeks Pharisees too. Jesus left his home in heaven to find us in the pigsty of our own sin. Do you realize this? And then he who lived a perfect life of love and devotion to God and others, he died the death that we deserve. Jesus paid it all. He was forsaken. He was abandoned. He was cut off. He was bleeding. He was naked, nailed to a splintered piece of wood, the propitiation for our sins. He lived a completely sinless life. He died the death that the worst of sinners deserve. He took the wrath of God. He endured the pain and the shame. And because of this, because of this, any one of us, each of us not worthy to be called servants, can be brought in as sons. Everything is fair because Jesus paid the price. Everything is free because Jesus paid the price. This is grace. It's undeserved. It's amazingly costly. It's for us. And it's for you if you're willing to step inside, hear the entreaty of the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, and through the word of God, be reconciled to God. Brothers and sisters, sacrifice doesn't lead, it doesn't need to lead to resentment. We love because he first loved us. And if you understand what grace is, then you'll understand that we don't have to give and serve. We don't have to minister. We don't have to sacrifice. We get to. Because everything is grace upon grace. We deserve nothing. Everything is on the table. So whoever you are, whatever your past, whatever you're hiding, however you're feeling, there's just one thing you need to do today. And it has to do with grace. You know what it is? You just have to receive it. Father, we're thankful for this time that we could look into your word.
God, there was a lot to cover. But I pray, Father, that the anthem of grace would resound in our ears and in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.